Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are talking about direct share investments. That is it, buying equities, buying stocks, buying shares, but more importantly than just buying them, having a process behind it to make sure that your results are consistent, they're profitable, and they meet your goals and objectives. As always, take plenty of notes, but most importantly, make sure you take plenty of action. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my co-host and offsider, Mitchell Orenshaw. Thank you for having me, Mr. Baxter. Exciting show. Today, we're going to be talking about our bread and butter, what we do each and every day for a living, and that's trading the stock market. But in particular, going back to basics, peeling it back, talking about direct share investment, what it is, how it works, and how to actually do it. Goodness me. Well, that's a, a pretty expansive topic and one we can talk all day on, that's for sure. So we'll try and keep this one uh, on point as much as possible. So what have we got? Where are we starting? Probably a good question to kick off for our listeners, AB, would be what is the definition of share investing in its simplest form? Okay. So share investing is where you effectively buy a part ownership in a company. And that doesn't mean to say you're taking it over. You might buy 10 shares in Commonwealth Bank, which gives you a very small slither of ownership in that particular business. Um, some of the benefits that come from ownership are that you get your share of the profits by way of a dividend when they're paid. Uh, also, you get the ability to vote at uh, various AGMs and other meetings of that nature. Uh, and yeah, it gives you a vested interest in, in seeing that company prosper, hopefully uh, going up rather than sideways or down. It's quite a, a quite a crazy philosophy when you think about it. You actually own a piece of these big businesses. So it's Commonwealth Bank, as mm. you say, you may even bank with Commonwealth, huge multinational business, and you actually own a piece of the business. Yep. Awesome. Right. Absolutely. I always remember, you know, my dad said to me, don't put money in the bank, put money into bank shares. Great advice in, in that instance, because then instead of getting your poultry level of interest, you get to participate in the vast profits that these organizations get to make. So look, a lot of people do invest direct shares. It's obviously been our bread and butter owning a stockbroking business amongst other things. And, and I think it's such a terrific place for people to really get started in the investment journey, not only in terms of the financial benefits, but also I think from a learning perspective too, in that, you know, there are some steps that are required to buy shares. You've got to have a stockbroking account, for example. Um, you need to fund it and then you need to make a choice as to what assets to put in there. So there's a fair number of steps. And, and for me, when people begin on this journey into direct share investing, it shows me that they've got a level of commitment and fortitude. They're not just talking about something. They've actually taken action steps and they're moving closer toward that. And I love to see that and I love to see those people rewarded. Hopefully the shares that they purchase help them do that, but uh, sometimes it doesn't. Absolutely. Well, let's dive into this a little bit more, AB. So in terms of types of shares, just broadly speaking, mm. got international shares, domestic shares, blue chip, specky stocks. Let's talk about the differences between those. Okay, well, we'll start with blue chips. Blue chips would be the definition of the the, the big cap type company. So if you think about the top 50 companies in, in any given stock market, so you know, if we're talking here in Australia, obviously it's going to be the big four banks, BHP, Rio, Fortescue Metals, Woolworths, Coles, uh, AMP, Telstra, and these are all companies, CSL. These are all companies that people are very familiar with that they probably engage in using their products on a daily basis. So they're very, very high profile brands for one. And two, there's a, a behemoth and very, very established business behind it. So they're not new companies necessarily. They typically are time tested that have been around for, for quite some time uh, that have sort of shown their credentials to be not only um, you know, a big company, but profitable and, and been good to their share investors. So that's a very loose definition of what a blue chip would be. So the biggest, um, highest profile uh, big cap companies. If we're looking at the US, it would of course include things like Apple, Google, Microsoft, JP Morgan, uh, American Airlines, uh, and so on and so forth. The big household names that you're 
familiar with. So as a very crude definition, that's a good place to start. At the other end of the equation, um, away from, and I'm, I'm going to use the term very loosely, the quality screen uh, of blue chips are more the speculative end of the market. And oftentimes these can be referred to as things like penny dreadfuls, uh, so-called not because the shares are pennies, nothing is pennies these days, of course, but because typically they're much, much cheaper shares to purchase. Uh, and these can be junior companies that are going into the mining space, for example, or a new technology company that's come out. Uh, and until such times as they're able to to um, prove the concept of what they're trying to do. They typically uh, are at the more volatile end of the market, certainly the most speculative. But some of those, some of those penny dreadfuls, some of those speculative businesses can, can make it right the way through to, to the big end of town and past that. So, you know, it is a, a journey that you have to start if you're a listed company where what's this new business, what's it all about? And over time, as you earn the trust of the market and investors, you progress through to that coveted status of being a blue chip. Well, there you go. So there's an example, a couple of examples, at least, of international versus domestic, small oh, so, cap, large cap. Okay, so if we if we talk domestic versus international for a moment, domestic would be stocks that are listed here in Australia, obviously, given we're coming from Australia today. Uh, international would be stocks that are listed on the major global exchanges around the world. So, you know, that could be you know, RBS in the UK uh, or, or Pfizer in the US, to give you two examples. And you know, when you talk to people about starting that journey into direct investing in shares, you want to make it very easy, low friction, so they can get started. And oftentimes, the easiest way of getting started is to invest in your in your local market where you understand, or maybe at least know something of the businesses. And, and typically, broking platforms, because you're going to need to be able to buy your shares, ordinarily cater for the local market that they trade. So most people, when they start out, their portfolio is very, very heavily focused domestically. Um, Arguably, that could and should change over time, and I think we've talked about this previously. Where, you know, in a in a regular financial planning model, the focus for lower risk investing is domestically, and then a small smattering of international shares uh, to give you some colour. Yet, you know, the Australian economy is such a tiny proportion of the globe. You know, one point six percent of the global economy. Having all your eggs in one basket of a very very small blip on the radar of what the global economy is all about. To me, it makes far more sense to go for those big global brands, which by definition means trading in the US market. So Absolutely. I think being open to international shares is is, is very important. You know, there can be some challenges to that, and we'll, we'll talk to that, I'm sure, as uh, as we get into a little bit more depth. But uh, now we're looking at blue chips uh, or speckies, and we're looking domestically and internationally. Great place to be uh, kicking off. So really three reasons why anyone would buy a direct share AB is for capital gains over the long term. Mm. It's for dividends, for mm. income, or to reinvest dividends. So let's talk to each three of those individually, what they are, why they're good, or why they're maybe not. I think you know, buying a share, and, and you know, I've met hundreds of thousands of clients over the years, um, you, know, you get people come in and, and I've got a portfolio of shares, my parents, my dad set up, or my mum set up a portfolio of shares for me when I was born, and they've inherited this portfolio of typically blue chips, and you know, some of them don't exist anymore. Uh, others uh, have done tremendously well. And, and that notion of buying them for a capital gain uh, is the overarching reason for doing it. People don't buy shares in the stock market because they're bored. Um, you know, it's, it's the idea is to see that money grow uh, and grow by the share price appreciating. Uh, and that can be a very, very powerful model. And if you look at, you know, just some of the success stories, you know, CSL being a very good example of that of an Australian company that's gone on to conquer the world in the particular area that it's in. Um, you know, prior to it being taken over by Square, you look at Afterpay, great story, something listed for five bucks and you'd have got out of it for close to 40. You know, great fantastic 800% return on your money. And these are the sort of stories that everyone wants to hear uh, to generate interest in, in, in wanting to invest in stocks. 
but what if those stocks haven't really gone up over the long term? Maybe they've ground a little bit higher, but they've never been that spectacular double, triple, quadruple the money you put down. Well, the other reason, particularly in blue chip shares, is that each six months or annually, depending on the company's policy, um, we spoke earlier, if you're a shareholder, you get a small slither of ownership in that business, which means you're entitled to your cut of the profit when it's divvied up. Um, and that's paid out by way of a dividend. As I say, typically six months, sometimes annually here in Australia. Uh, and so every six months on top of your ownership of the shares, you receive a, a check in the post or an electronic credit these days um, of your entitlement of that profit, which is great because I guess it's free money for a lot of people. It's very passive. You've just owned the shares. You haven't had to do a paint job or put a new carpet in. It's just moved along and you've been paid for your uh, stake in that business. Um, the flip side to getting a dividend, of course, is usually the share price drops a little bit uh, in the immediate aftermath of that dividend. But over the long term, if you're someone that's going to hold it, you expect you know the share price to then recover and move higher. can also be quite tax effective uniquely in Australia, actually, where we have uh, franking credits. And so when a dividend is paid, if it's a fully franked dividend, it means the tax has been paid at the prevailing corporate rate. And then if you've received that dividend as income, the tax already paid at, say, 30%. So you only need to pay a top up if you're on a higher tax rate than 30%, or if your tax rate is lower than 30, you get a credit. So there's a there's an element of tax effectiveness with that too, which makes it very, very attractive. So you've got an ability to hold an asset that could go up in value. You've got an ability to generate a twice a year income from that, which you know might only be four or five percent, could be higher in some years, but typically it's around about that sort of level. The third uh, aspect of that is what we call a, a dividend reinvestment plan. And, and this is somewhere I think for someone, if you don't need the income, if you're an investor listening to this and you don't particularly need the income, and also if you're at the early part of your journey. So let's say you're setting up a portfolio for your kids. Um, having a dividend reinvestment plan is an extremely important thing to consider. So instead of taking your slice of the profit in the form of cash, which then gets taxed, you take it in the form of new shares, which simply get reinvested in the business and can help then facilitate a greater compounding of your wealth. And that can actually be really quite surprising over you know, a, a significant period of time. And I've seen clients that have come in there, they've had, for example, um, a company share plan where they've been given some shares in a company and they've just taken their dividends as new shares and they've ended up with you know a really quite substantial portfolio uh, in that space and it's great to see that when it happens. So those are the three key metrics we could add in using options and stocks to generate more income, but I guess we'll keep that for another time because that's that's my bread and butter. That's yeah, that's my, the fun. My part. secret sauce. <laughs> Absolutely. So maybe when anyone is looking to buy some shares in the market, it can be quite a hard decision. Hmm. And we'll, I know we'll talk about the process in terms of which shares you could be selecting based on analysis metrics and whatnot. Although diversification is really important. You don't want all your eggs in one basket, but then again, you don't want too many that is too much to carry, right? Well, diversification is, you know, if you've ever read anything on investing or done any course on it, they talk, um, you know, extensively about the importance of diversification. And, and look, without being controversial, there are two schools of thought on that. Yes, diversification can add value in terms of reducing risk. But diversification for the sake of it is actually a nemesis in that it can dilute the performance of really good stocks by having running alongside them. Oh, I better get some of this one as well just so I'm diversified. And that could be an absolute dog. And I'll give you a couple of examples of that in a moment. So, you know, a diversified portfolio, having four banks is not diversified because you've got extreme exposure to one sector being the banking sector. So having some banks 
a supermarket, a couple of mining companies, an insurance firm, uh, uh, and some other peripheral businesses, maybe a couple of tech stocks, starts to offer a little bit more diversification. But you know, I'd argue that if you want diversification, just buy an index tracking fund, or better yet, buy an ETF, because that's going to give you perfect diversification. So it's a bit of an ambit point from a risk management perspective. I like the idea of a concentrated portfolio if you've got a sufficiently a sufficiently strong uh, sort of um, uh, view on something. So let's say you know you've got a strong view on banks, in which case you've got a couple of banks in your portfolio. But in order to diversify, um, you've added in Telstra and AMP, a telecommunications company and and, 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 and dealer group or, or, or life insurance company uh, to sort of spread your risk out. Now, you've done very well holding the banks, but if you look at the, say, 20-year performance of AMP and Telstra, then I'll pick those two examples because they're two of the most widely held blue chip shares in Australia by mum and dad investors. They've been absolute dogs. Um, you know, you know, at one point in time, AMP uh, was up in the high 20s and 30s, and now it's a, a dollar and 50 or less. So you've had an enormous denigration of the value of your capital. So we talked previously about the notion of buying shares for those three reasons, capital growth, a dividend or a dividend reinvestment plan. Even if you've received dividends on, on, on AMP, you're so massively behind in terms of what your money is worth now, um, simply because you held the wrong stock over the wrong period of time. And I guess you know, that's what share investing is all about. It's identifying good quality companies. And then second to that, and we'll get onto the process for this in a moment, I'm sure, is identifying when's a good time to buy them or Better yet, when's a good time to sell them? The other alternate on that example, of course, would be Telstra, which, you know, again, if you bought Telstra one and two, you're probably in for north of $7 for the two. And, you know, you're looking at an investment that is worth about $4.50. And they're not unique to the Australian market. If we look at it on an international basis, you know, let's say we're talking about the US market and you felt that to diversify, you needed two really good quality apple pie American blue chip companies. And, and you happen to add in AT&T, which by coincidence with Telstra as a telco, um, look at its share price performance over the last 23, 24 years. It has been horrific. Uh, another stock that typically people would have in a portfolio in the US would be something like GE, which under um, Jack Welsh, its uh, former CEO, was arguably one of the better businesses from a dividend perspective. But when you actually look at the capital performance of its shares over that period of time, it's been over a 20-year period, it's been woeful. So just holding good quality or big blue chip companies for an extensive period of time doesn't guarantee you're going to make money. So there needs to be a process to sift out what you should hold, irrespective of time frame, uh, versus what you should flick. And that becomes quite confronting because we mentioned that there's effort involved buying shares. You got to open a broking account, you got to save some money, you got to fund that account, you got to make the decision of what to buy, and then you got to have the courage to hit the go button or pick up the phone, talk to your broker. Even harder than that is that decision to sell because psychologically, when you own something, you feel far more connected to it and learning and, and letting it go is, is quite a hard thing to do. That endowment effect can kick in. So having a process to replace that and, and perhaps take out some of the emotion is absolutely critical if you want to be successful at this. So in terms of the process, AB, you've got me curious. Let's talk to what that is. Fundamentals, technicals, quants. Let's absolutely. talk about how they overlap. The idea of all of this is not to blindly hold shares. And I think, you know, to to, to, to segue into, into that process, you know, we talked previously about shares being quite passive where you can hold them and receive your dividend. But rather like a garden, you do need to tend it. You do need to make sure that it's keeping pace. The shares are still relevant to today's world. Uh, and this is something that's extremely important. So reviewing your holdings, and we talked, for example, about having a money date. 
even if you did that once a month, is very, very important. It's probably not quite enough if you're a direct share investor, but nonetheless, I think it's really important to assess the the viability long term of where you feel this investment is going to go. And I guess the example I would use is that you you always want to invest in companies that, that meet a couple of criteria. Number one, they provide a good or service that people want, or better yet, people need, because there's always going to be demand for that. And this is why in times of crisis, things like utilities can be quite a good or safer investment because you need the power on. So they've then something that you have to have. So that's the first sort of layer of analysis. The second thing is that you want companies that perhaps are a little bit forward looking in that they're in tune with what's going on in the economy and they're constantly reinventing themselves to be positioned to exploit that. I'll give you a couple of examples in a moment. Amazon is a really good example, which started as an online bookshop. Now you can't even see books on the front page of Amazon because its business has evolved so far past that because it's a very, very smart business. Yet to the outside, it looks like it's the same company that just sells stuff online that gets delivered to you. But the nuances of what's changed within that business are incredible. Another <clears throat> good example of that would be you know, if we were to talk about Blockbuster Video, which in its day was an incredible business um, before your time, I would imagine. But no, I remember uh, going to Blockbuster. That was awesome as a kid. In, in, in the kids section, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, it was yeah, great. Yeah. The, Never returned them either. <laughs> the um, the um, interesting thing with Blockbuster, I mean, it was a fantastic business during its time, but it failed to recognize the shift online. And interestingly, not only did it fail to recognize the shift online, but it failed to recognize the opportunity that Netflix presented because Blockbuster actually could have bought Netflix for about $70 million and they kicked them out of the office. Who'd be interested in on the line? Ridiculous. People want DVDs. That's what it boils down to. Now Netflix is a multi-hundred billion dollar business and Blockbuster is gone. And that's something that's really important to acknowledge. So you could have been a great business at a point in time, but you've got to be investing for what the company's going to do in the future. And in a way, it's just like driving a car. You know, you look out the windscreen at what's coming towards you if you want to successfully and safely drive a car. If you spend all your time dreaming and looking in the rear view mirror, you're going to rear end someone or have an accident. So companies that are looking at their past, it's an archaic model and AMP is an extremely good example of that. Whereas you, know, you want companies that are really forward looking and seeing what's coming on over the hill and positioning themselves to be able to really capitalize on that. So how do you go about doing that? And I guess the process, um, if we dive a little bit deeper, and I'm going to go too deep on this because we provide a huge amount of support and education on the specifics of this. I love process. I know you do as well. And it's, it's, it's why we work so successfully together in terms of the way that you service our clients and you provide the trade ideas, particularly that the, the, the clients take, is because there's a process that sits behind it. And, and you can't have something that's too complex because if it's too complex, nothing ever actually quite meets the process. So you operate outside of it, you're out of control. And if it's too blunt at all, it doesn't add any value. So achieving that balance between is is very, very important. And over the years, I guess, our IP that we've developed is, is exactly that. So in the first instance, I mentioned that buying shares is about finding a good quality company that's relevant today. So let's call that fundamentals. So you're looking for a business that sits well in the current economy, that provides a service that people want and need, double whammy, uh, and does so in a way that's quite profitable. Okay, that would be a, a company on most metrics that are pretty good. I haven't added an ESG screen on that. It's not our obligation to do that purely and simply because our clients of their own volition can then work out whether it's something that fits their, their belief system. Uh, so fundamentally, we found a company that's, that's, that's a good business that people want to own its products that it manufactures. 
So that's our definition of good business. There's a little bit more to it than that in terms of how it's affected by news flow uh, and things of that nature. Uh, the second part of that is when's a good time to buy it? When is it value? And to help us with that, we use technical analysis. We use charts. Charts are fantastic tools. They are the best thing for helping you with your timing. But just because they're such a good thing, using them on their own, just like anything if it's used on its own. My frying pan is fantastic, but if I don't use a spatula to turn the kids' pancakes over in the morning, I'm either going to drop them on the floor trying to toss them or they're going to burn. So I need the spatula and the fry pan to make good pancakes. Simple as that. And technicals on their own, good as they are for timing, do not present the full story. And I, I, I've seen over the years, you know, people get very deep in that rabbit hole where they only use charts. And it's kind of, how do you explain September 11 and the 35% drop in the market? Just looking at the chart, you need to know that there was a terrorist attack. So those two things together, technicals and fundamentals, can be very useful. Technical analysis, and this is a warning for everybody listening to this, is a is a massively overcomplicated area. Keep it very simple would be my advice to you, and I've made millions of dollars by keeping it simple. Using tons of indicators can start to have a diminishing return. Notwithstanding, it makes it very hard to understand what's going on. So keep it pretty simple. But if you can use that tool to help you when you're looking at what you think is a good quality business to determine when's a good price or what is a good price and when's a good time to get in and what's a good price and when's a good time to get out, it's really the guts of what technicals are at. So now you've got a reason to own the shares and you've got the ability to time it. The third component, what we call quants, so these three are kind of like a Venn diagram, if you imagine it drawn out, where those three circles overlap, that is where we want to play because that's what we would consider to be a high probability trade. It's a great quality business. We've got our timing to decide when we want to get in, when we want to get out, and the prices associated with it. But the way we use quants is to provide a really dynamic risk management tool for our clients. So not all stocks are the same. And in just the same way, not all food is the same, if I can use this analogy. So if we went out for Mexican or, or Indian, better yet, and maybe you're with somebody that doesn't like spicy food and you ordered the hottest, most spicy vindaloo on the menu, it's probably not going to be a very pleasant experience for them either then or probably the next day. And so ordering something that's far more mild, a butter chicken, is a good place for them to start because it's it's commensurate with their taste buds at the time. And as they get more familiar with spicy food, they might choose to crank it up the scale a little bit. And maybe they do end up at Vindaloo, but that's not the place to start because it can be a turn off for a lot of people. Well, in just the same way, we can use a similar scale for stocks where you can have stocks that are very spicy or you can have stocks that are very mild. And if you're dealing with someone that's brand new to investing, Putting them into a spicy stock is going to be very stressful because the price is going to move around a lot. It's going to be very, very volatile. The idea is to start people in a more pedestrian way, especially if they're new to this. Let them see some results. Build their confidence. And rather like swimming, as you get more confident, you can move further down the pool toward the deep end. Just the same way, we want to start you with mild. And, and a really simple example of that here in Australia would be if you're talking about iron ore. Uh, and you could maybe look at Rio, Fortescue, and BHP. Now, if you've got a, a strong view that iron ore prices are moving up, for traders like you and I, Fortescue would probably be the pick. But Fortescue only digs iron ore out of the ground and moves it to China. So it's a one-trick pony. And as a consequence, it's quite volatile. It's quite spicy. And so for someone that's brand new to investing, putting them just in a spicy stock like that is going to be too stressful. Whereas if you said, no, let's dial it down and put you into BHP, which is a more diversified resources play, 
the stock price is going to move around in a less volatile fashion. You're going to be more comfortable holding it. So put those three things together, technicals, fundamentals, quants, have a think about a curry where you're doing it. And ultimately, you're then going to be in the sweet spot where you're finding good quality businesses that you've got your timing worked out on when's a good time to get in, when's a good time to get out. And then ultimately, you're making sure that it's not something that's going to be a white knuckle ride for you by making sure the spiciness of it is at a level you're comfortable with. That formula works very, very well. And I can attest to that, having taught it to literally tens of thousands of people around the world. And what we use every day to do our trade recommendations in-house at AIE. So absolutely 100%. with you on that. Mm. In terms of what to avoid, AB, I've just spoken about how to. Let's talk about some things to avoid when you're investing in shares directly. Anything that stands out to you? Look, I think getting caught up in um, the theme of the day can be quite challenging sometimes. Um, like if there are a lot of headlines on a particular area. So FOMO, you mean? FOMO is a good example of that. So buy now, pay later, uh, which was a huge trend, you know, three, four years ago. Um is one such example where you've hit pay dirt, there's a sector that's running really, really hard, and it's the best thing since sliced bread, but all of those things have their day as we've subsequently seen. And I think using a more objective measure, as I've just alluded to with that strategy of technicals, fundamentals, quants, you know, charts, understanding the business and spiciness will help you avoid those kind of things. Um, so missing out on FOMO and that whole emotional reaction of needing to be into something because the people at work have got it, your mate's got it down the road, or or you've seen it and it just keeps running away from you. Typically, they're not great long-term investments. And, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not a huge advocate for blindly holding for the long term. I'd much prefer to be actively managing, but that's me and my personality type and I guess my skill set. Um, so definitely avoid that. Um, flavor of the month FOMO type stuff. Secondly, as we've alluded to, is that really spicy end of the market, which you know speculative shares and the tech sector is renowned for being like that, where you go, why would I hold boring old XYZ that goes up on average by eight or nine percent a year when this thing's gone up by forty percent? And yeah, it has gone up by 40%. And maybe it might put on another 40%. It could easily retrace another 40% because they don't always go up. Sometimes they come back. Whether or not you have the skill set, the risk management, the fortitude uh, to be able to trade that actively to say, look, I'm going to get in it. And if it keeps going up, I'll hold it. But if it starts to roll over, I'm getting out. You've got to have the skill set and the self-discipline to do that, which requires a lot of time in the trading gym to build that muscle memory up and the, the ability to execute that plan perfectly, which ultimately, you know, if you think about the definition of a trader, what your job description is, is so simple. It's just to execute your trading plan perfectly every time. That's right. Absolutely. A couple of things in terms of things to avoid. Platforms, pick a platform that's licensed, number one. I know that sounds so obvious, but there are so many iffy companies that you see uh, online to make sure they carry an Australian financial services license in the first instance. Avoid sending money offshore at all costs. So you say, well, yeah, but you've talked about investing in the US. That's correct. But you can, with our trading platform, for example, invest in, I think it's something like 78 markets around the world, all from an Australian-based, Australian dollar-held AFSL-covered account. So you, you don't need to send money offshore. You shouldn't need to send money offshore. Be very, very careful because you know your, your consumer protection and rights are significant significantly compromised as soon as you do that. You know, to that end also is, oh, well, I'd like to invest offshore, but there are there are tax implications for doing that. And again, that's why working with people like ourselves, no unashamed uh, plug here, but you know, we can help you on the tax side by filling in a W8 Ben form, which means in the US, you don't pay tax in the US, you only pay it here in Australia, which is you know just the value add type stuff that we're able to help people with. Um, choosing your platform, make sure the brokerage fees are competitive. I wouldn't get caught up on the merry-go-round of 
oh, this one's got the cheapest fees, therefore it's better, uh, because there's always a trade-off. So you want to have reliable data. You want to have someone you can pick up and talk to from a support perspective, a person, not a chatbot, because chances are if you've made a mistake and you want to talk to somebody, talking to a chatbot when you're on the wrong side of a trade and it's moving against you is probably going to not end too well for you stress-wise or indeed financially. So that ability to pick up the phone and talk to someone and say, look, I've stuffed up, I think I've done this, can you help me? Is something I think is you know, is worth paying a little bit more for from a brokerage perspective. Um, direct market access direct, as well. Direct market access is a huge one. So make sure your trades aren't being bucketed and then put through to the market. And these are sorts of things that will be disclosed in things like a financial services guide. Make sure the firm you're operating with doesn't have a, a B-book where they're taking the opposite side of the trade from you is another one. So these are all you know, more nuanced in terms of the big things. Getting started can't encourage it enough. Best time to start was yesterday, if not day before. Focusing on where your niche needs to be, and it should be when you're starting out blue chips, don't blindly hold them for the long term. Use the process that we've talked about, technicals, fundamentals, and quants to help yourself choose the right shares, maybe at the right time with good quality risk management. Don't be nervous about investing overseas. You know, maybe that, you know, you look at companies like Disney, for example, and irrespective of, you know, your view on uh, what Ron DeSantis is up to in Florida with them right now, you know, over time it's been shown to be a pretty solid performer in market. So having an inclusion of a stock like that, if you want to have a long term passive portfolio, kind of makes sense. Um, and then around that workout, well, what am I looking to achieve here? Is it I want to make money? Yes, of course. But how is it through a move up in the stock or is it the dividend or is it by acquiring more stock through the dividend reinvestment plan or indeed you know, some options work are all things to consider. But the best advice I'd give anyone is, is get started, but there's always a but get started in the right way. And I think, you know, personally speaking and having you know, owned a couple of retail brokers over the years, uh, and, a, and a broker dealer in the US, the, the the scariest thing to see is when when someone opens a broking account and they go, I'm going to put 20 grand in or 50 grand in or 10 grand in or whatever the number, the number doesn't matter. It's significant for that person. Okay. So it's not about, oh, that was a bigger amount. You know, it's a significant amount for that person. I'll put some money in and I'll give it a go and see what happens. It's just about the worst thing you can do. And I could, you know, you just see it when you look at the account performance over time, they just get belted and the account you know, eventually dries up and is gone. The best thing you can do is invest in your education at a level to start in the right way because if you start properly, learn it once, learn it right, live off it forever is something you know, I'm fond of saying for the simple reason that if you start this journey properly and start to see a result, you'll commit more funds to it. And if you commit more funds to it and you're doing it right, you'll make a fortune. If you fly by the seat of your pants, and you follow a few people at work or you know, see what's going on online or, or just give it a go and try and pin the tail on the donkey, this, the, the probability of it working for you is so tiny. It's your money you worked hard for. You've got a fiduciary duty as the person that earned that money to invest it with the same level of effort and diligence that it took you to earn it. And that means making sure you have a process. That means you strip out the emotion. It means using the right kind of tools. And more importantly, you're doing it for the right reasons for you. So it might be you're setting up a portfolio for your kids. And that doesn't mean to say, well, I'm buying, you know, and I've got five kids to set portfolios up for. A lot of shares for. to buy, yeah. And, and I wouldn't just blindly go and put a stock in there and say, oh, you know, by the time you get to university, you'd be paying tuition fees with that stock because the business could be gone by then. It's a question of making sure that just like the garden, you mow the lawn and you trim the bushes just to keep it looking clean and tidy and moving forward, pull the weeds out, that sort of stuff. And it's just the same with a stock market portfolio. Learning how to do that is priceless because it's probably, in my experience, 
the only truly scalable business. It doesn't matter how much money you want to put in, you can scale to that level. But you can only scale when you're confident in what you're doing. And the only way you can be confident in what you're doing is to achieve results. And the only way to achieve results is to have learned what you're doing. And the only way to have done that is to start properly. Well, there you go. That sounds like a pretty good plan to me, AB. Very nice. That's what it's all about. Got to have a plan. If you haven't got a plan, you're planning to fail. It's as simple as that. Follow the process, dig in. As I say, we have a, this is our backyard. We have a ton of resources and I could talk all down this. I love opening that door of opportunity for people so they can have a better quality of life. I know when I first started investing when I was a kid, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I bought some shares. I lost all my money just before the 87 crash to date the story, October 87. And in a way, perversely, I'm glad that happened to me because it made me learn a lot more and I've been able to subsequently make a career out of this. And the courage it took back then, if I remember back in the dark old days in Swindon of growing up, um, to take that money that I learned in a part-time job and to very deliberately and consciously expose it to the risk of the market takes a lot of courage to do. And when people are prepared to step up and show that courage, I think as a financial educator, it's their obligation to say, look, appreciate the courage of you stepping up. Let me help you walk across this minefield so you don't blow your legs off. And if I can help you do that successfully, that gives me more pleasure in life than anything these days. Love it, AB. Great advice today. Great rundown. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Anytime, Mitch. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating and make sure you share this podcast with someone that you know is looking to get started in the stock market.